You are visiting us today. My name is Brendan. I'm a pastor here at Sovereign Grace Church. Uh, if you're visiting us online, maybe you've tuned into live stream. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us in our Advent series, where we're pausing and looking at Jesus, and we're looking at the way in which Jesus impacts people's lives and changes people's lives. And so today we're going to dive right into John chapter three, and we're going to look at another such example of Jesus changing people's lives. John chapter 3, verse 1. And now I'm going to pray for us. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness about what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe If I tell you heavenly things, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Would you pray with me? But God, I want to thank you this morning that we get to gather like this as your people before your word and to hear from you. And Lord God, in the midst of busy lives with much distraction, we long to hear from you, to find out more about this Jesus and to be changed. And Lord God, I pray for us as we listen to your word this morning. Work a miracle. Open our hearts. Open our minds. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, this morning I want to begin by asking a question. And the question I want us to think about is this. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with us as a society? What's wrong with us even more so as individuals? You know, by and large, as a society, I think we tend to believe that our problems are actually external to us. They're outside of us. Uh, They're to do with the economy or with the government and politics or with education and having equal opportunity. You know, I've been thinking about this this year with 2020 being marked by so many different protest movements, each of them with a cry for change, wanting to see things change. Let's think about some of them. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter as a protest movement says our problem as a society is that we systematically seek to oppress and seek the demise of black people and or that our police unfairly target people of colour. And the solution is political change. We need to defund the police. We need greater social equality. We need more kind of socialist type governance. Uh, There's the climate strikes movement led by Greta Thunberg, uh, which sees our problem as being that we don't take seriously enough the radical changes we're seeing to our climate. And as a result, the solution is we need to disrupt the political status quo. We need to educate and mobilize young people to achieve carbon neutrality as soon as possible. Or there's the Day of Silence movement, which sees that our problem is that we've isolated and excluded and shamed LGBTQ plus people, and we need to become more inclusive and tear down the structures that promote heteronormativity or cisgender privilege. Or there's even the anti-lockdown movement, which sees our problem as being the government that has become too big, too controlling, and the solution is smaller government, fewer taxes, more freedom. You know, there's certain elements of truth in each and every one of these different movements, but here's a question I want us to consider as a group this morning. What if our problem isn't out there, but actually in here? What if there's actually something deeply wrong with each and every one of us? That's a thought that's a little bit uncomfortable for us here in the Upper North Shore. We kind of live in what seems like a utopia in many different ways. It's a beautiful neighborhood. There's minimal obvious crime around us. We've all worked so hard. We're good, upstanding citizens. We've achieved comfort and blessing. We've afforded the opportunity to sip lattes anytime we like without a second thought. We can travel anywhere we please apart from COVID rules. Personally, I barely know a single person that's been made redundant anywhere due to COVID. I mean, surely we represent everything that's right with the world right? You know, in our passage today, we see an encounter between Jesus and a very religious man. And this encounter really gets to the heart of what the Bible says our dilemma is. If you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, You Must Be Born Again. And I've got two points I'm going to talk about. The most uh, of the time I'm going to spend on the first point And uh, really one heart for us this morning as we examine this passage together, and that's that we'd see that complete transformation is required to enter the kingdom of God. Complete transformation. I'm going to unpack what all those different words mean if you're less familiar with the Bible with us this morning. 
But that's really where we're going, that this passage teaches us that complete transformation, nothing short of it, is required to enter the kingdom of God. Well, let's dive right into our story as we begin with point number one, which is Nicodemus's hidden problem. Why don't you read with me again verse number one of our passage this morning. It says the following. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Our story begins with this man called Nicodemus. He is a deeply religious man and a highly acclaimed teacher in Israel. He's a Pharisee. That's kind of almost like a derogatory term these days. But at that time, it was actually the name for a conservative religious group in the first century. Uh, In Palestine, this uh, conservative religious group focused on faithfully obeying the writings of the Old Testament uh, and, uh, of course, rabbinic teachers, uh, teachings from famous rabbis that accompanied them. In verse 10, Jesus describes this man, Nicodemus, as the teacher in Israel, which was actually a formal title for someone, an honorific title. Nicodemus was, in fact, a recognized master of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, He was an established religious expert and authority in Israel. Maybe in today's terms, he might have a title, something like the Reverend Canon Professor of Theology or something like that. And he was a ruler of the Jews. That means he was a member of the governing body called the Sanhedrin. It was the governing authority in Roman Judea, a kind of equivalent to the Supreme Court. Maybe here in Australia, they would see legal cases, decide upon domestic affairs uh, that were presented before them. But different from here in Australia, their governing law that they would seek to apply was the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Now, the question I want us to think about is, on first impressions, what would you say is wrong with this man? There's kind of nothing obvious, is there? I mean, he's an upstanding citizen. He's a culturally significant person. He's a community leader. He's deeply religious, and he's respected throughout his entire nation. You see, Nicodemus's problem was hidden. It wasn't obvious from the outside, but it was obvious to Jesus. You know, in the verses that come before our passage in John chapter 2, verse 24, immediately above it, John writes of Jesus the following. But Jesus on his part, says John, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Now, Jesus, according to John, has this penetrating knowledge of people. He's able to peer into the very souls of people and discern their character immediately. He is able to examine their hearts and their minds and their thoughts, and nothing is hidden from him. And similarly, he's cast his gaze right upon Nicodemus and has seen right to the heart of him. Let's read on in our story. Verse 2, it says the following, this man came to Jesus by night. That's a really interesting comment in the story. We're not actually told why Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. I mean, maybe it's he wants kind of uninterrupted uh, audience at that time. Jesus being a rabbi would have been teaching throughout the day. But we're not actually told why he came at night. 
It's possible as we look at John chapter 7, we see that Nicodemus later makes a vain attempt to try and stop the Sanhedrin, the governing body, from writing off Jesus completely. But he was dismissed by the Sanhedrin out of hand. And so we can guess that Nicodemus was possibly a fairly timid man. And so is it that that he was perhaps ashamed with being associated with Jesus and so didn't want to be seen with Jesus because of his controversial teaching, we're actually not told. And yet John's purpose is likely a bit more symbolic. As we read throughout John's gospel, we read that nighttime is a symbol time and time again for moral and spiritual blindness. And so as John paints the story, John wants us to see that Despite appearances, Nicodemus is a man who's caught in darkness. A darkness that Nicodemus can't even see for himself. Let's read on. Verse 2 again, it says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. But no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus says, Jesus, we've seen the miracles you've been doing. We know you must be from God because all these miracles are kind of enough for us to see that God must be with you. You're definitely receiving, Jesus, some sort of supernatural power from God. We're not really sure what it is, but I'm here to find out more. See, Nicodemus is curious Because Jesus seems to be doing all these miracles and he's interested in finding out more about it. And so we read on in verse 3, it says the following. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus says to Nicodemus, you think you've seen something of who I am because of my miracles? You can't see anything of the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Born again, completely changed. A change so radical, it's like being born for a second time. Complete regeneration, absolute transformation. Now, when Jesus says the kingdom of God here, not being able to see the kingdom of God, he's actually speaking about something that Nicodemus and people familiar with the Hebrew Bible would have immediately understood. Well, what is the kingdom of God? Well, throughout the Hebrew Bible, prophets had foretold that at the end of history, there would be this kingdom where God would reign on earth forever. More than that, God had promised the most famous king in the Hebrew Bible, a king called David, that his descendant would be king. This Messiah or God's anointed or God's chosen would establish a never-ending kingdom here on earth. That's what the Hebrew Bible teaches and taught. And prophets had also spoken something about this king and said that this king would be none other than God himself. You know, in a passage that we've been reading in our our small group devotionals uh, this week, it says the following in Isaiah 9 uh, verse 6. Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, the Hebrew Bible taught that at the end of history, this God and King would come and he would crush all of God's enemies for good. And he would reign on earth forever and ever and ever with his people. Now, here's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Jesus is saying, you think you can see who I am because you've seen something of my signs, my miracles that I've been doing? You won't see anything of this coming kingdom at all unless you are completely transformed. And Nicodemus would have been completely shocked by this. You know, religious thought in in Jesus' days was that you had to have really made a mess of your life in order to be excluded from this coming kingdom. You know, you had to do something really, really significant, like, I don't know, like rank apostasy or like kill someone or like maybe rape someone or steal something really significant. And no one would ever, ever question that a man so religious, so elite, so looked to by all people would miss out. Also, Nicodemus is still kind of caught on this idea of being born again. He's a bit confused by it. And so he asks Jesus, how can an old man like me re-enter his mum's womb? One, it's a little bit gross sounding, but two, it's impossible. And Jesus explains to him in verses five and six. He says the following. Read on the story with me. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, Jesus clarifies what he means by being born again. Entering into the kingdom of God is impossible without literally being born of water and spirit, says Jesus. Okay, what, is, what does that mean? Well, Jesus, again, is speaking in terms that would have been really familiar and easy to understand by Nicodemus. He's referring to a famous prophecy by the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, says the following. God speaking through Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh. See, Ezekiel was speaking to Israel at a time when they become really morally corrupt and bankrupt. And as a result, were being disciplined by God by being sent off to a far nation of Babylon. And they'd betrayed God by worshiping the gods of the people around them. And they were super stubborn, refusing to change their ways, even after the exile. And they had hearts of stone. It's a word picture that refers to a heart that's like impossible to change whatsoever. They were completely stubborn and had no desire to be changed whatsoever. But notice, God doesn't give these Israelites a six-step solution to get out of their plight. He doesn't do that at all. It's not like, you know, go to church every week and do all these things, maybe say some prayers every day, and then I'm going to fix you. No, 
God says this. He says, I'm going to sprinkle water on you and I'm going to cleanse you from your unfaithfulness towards me. He says, I'm going to actually give you a new spirit. I'm going to remove your hard, stubborn hearts and I completely change them to be soft, tender hearts that don't resist me anymore. God is saying to Israel, you're an absolute mess. You're morally bankrupt. You're unfaithful to me and completely stubborn. And I'm going to transform you. I'm going to completely renew you. Okay, how do you think this landed on Nicodemus? You know, if he's anything like the other Pharisees that we meet in the Gospels, he would have been convinced of his own moral righteousness and obedience. He would have been convinced that he had little need for repentance or cleansing. Nicodemus, he was a Bible scholar. He spent his whole life teaching obedience to God, devotion to his word, joyful submission to him as a means of entering into the kingdom of God. This would have been an incredibly difficult pill for him to swallow. It would have been deeply offensive. I mean, I need to be completely transformed. Is that what you're saying, Jesus? But here's the thing. It's not just the difficult pill for Nicodemus to accept. It's a completely difficult pill for us to accept here on the upper North Shore as well. You know, it's possible that in our midst or listening online, there are some people here who are, who are aware they've made a complete mess of their lives. You know, you, you've tried to make something out of your life and you have failed completely. And you don't need convincing that you need rescue and you need transformation from moral failure. You feel that each and every day. Well, this message is wonderful news for you because Jesus is saying he's out to transform you. But here's the thing. That's not the majority of us living in this neighborhood. You know, to live in this neighborhood, by and large, we're, we're successful people. We're wealthy by Sydney standards, but even if we don't consider ourselves wealthy, at least we would consider ourselves kind of middle class. You know, we're good, hardworking people. Now, not, not perfect, of course, uh, but, you know, no major failings. I mean, definitely, if the good and bad be weighed, the good, that would probably edge out the bad, we'd have to say, right? I mean, we're good citizens, we're good people, we contribute to the overall good of the community, don't we? I mean, we even occasionally, we attend church or, or listen online, right? We're pretty good people. You see, similar to Nicodemus, this idea of needing to be transformed is to us deeply offensive. See, Jesus isn't just saying that you need to be true to ourselves. He's saying something is deeply broken and defiled within you. Jesus doesn't say, you just do you. Jesus says, without cleansing and change to the very core of your identity, you won't even see the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying this is true of all people, all religions, all sexual orientations, all gender identities from all time. It doesn't matter whether you're the Pope or a porn star. It's the same for everyone. But why is this so deeply offensive to us here in Sydney? 
Well, the reason is, just like Nicodemus, our problem isn't obvious on the outside. It's hidden. Now, when we look around at others, at how we treat others to evaluate our own moral condition, we're not actually looking in the right direction. We're looking at the horizontal when actually we need to look in the vertical. You know, the Bible teaches that God is the owner and maker of everything in the universe, including all people. The Bible teaches that God is the source of everything that is good. The Bible teaches he made us with a purpose to be in relationship with him. And therefore, the greatest wickedness that is possible in this world isn't actually, ultimately, about how we treat other people, that is, God's creations. But it's actually about how we treat the ultimate source of life and goodness in the universe, and that is God himself. See, if you start attacking an artwork, the main damage isn't ultimately to the artwork itself, but to the master who has poured his heart into it. You know, if we want to assess our character, it's a good question to ask ourselves how we've treated those around us in our community. But it's actually not the main question. It's actually not the main way to ascertain the true state of your moral character. The main question is not how have I treated those around me. The main question is How have you treated God Almighty, your maker, the one who owns you? The main question is, have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength? Have you lived your life with God front and center for his pleasure and his approval? And if the honest answer to that question is no, then you are morally corrupt and God is just to punish you. In the words of Jesus, put simply, no one is good except God alone. Now, just like the Israelites in Ezekiel, we have idols. We have things we worship other than God, money, career, family, Most of all, ourselves. In this neighborhood, we so often live our lives thinking about ourselves and what we want most out of life more than anything else. And just like the Israelites, we need sprinkling with water to cleanse us from our defilement. Just like the Israelites, most of us, if we're honest, we have little desire to change. We enjoy our lives the way we're living and we're apathetic towards growing more in relationship with God. And so just like the Israelites, we're hard-hearted, unwilling to change, and we need God to give us a new spirit. And so that's point number one. Nicodemus' hidden problem. See, just like Nicodemus, we have a deep problem that's not necessarily obvious to others. Our relationship to God is broken, and therefore we are morally corrupt. 
But not just point number one, Nicodemus' hidden problem. Point number two, Jesus' radical solution. You see, Nicodemus' response to all of this is absolute disbelief. Read with me in verse 9. What does Nicodemus says? Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Now, in verse 12, Jesus goes on to make it clear that this isn't actually a genuine question from Nicodemus. He's not actually asking Jesus, explain to me, how is this going to be possible? He's actually saying, Jesus, what you're talking about, this complete inner transformation, it's not possible. He's really skeptical of what Jesus is saying here. He's so blinded by his cultural expectations, he can't see how this is even possible. I mean, everything Nicodemus has ever taught, everything Nicodemus has ever been taught, is that God would accept him based on his own merit. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've been dragged here, dragged along to church by a friend or a family member or a neighbor or a partner. And you're not really convinced by Jesus' claims. Now, regardless of whether you believe in God or not, our culture teaches that life is what you make out of it. Life is based on what you do, your merit. Success or failure in this life is based on what you achieve. If you're more religious like Nicodemus is, you, know, you might be skeptical and you might actually believe that what you've done is enough good in life in order to be accepted by God. And you kind of want to just intuitively deny this idea that you would ever need renewal. God will accept me, surely, purely as I am. But maybe for you, there's more of a non-religious version of the same kind of thing, which is so common in our culture, which is my life will be worthwhile if I just achieve X, Y, and Z in this life. And yet that's such a fragile way to live because if you fail X, Y, and Z, you'll be crushed. Your life will fall apart. But notice how Jesus doesn't just push skeptical Nicodemus away. No, Jesus leans in and draws him closer. Read with me in verse 10. Jesus says the following. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet You do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus says to Nicodemus, aren't you meant to be the reverent canon professor of theology and you don't understand what I'm talking about? I'm talking about what I know. I'm talking about what I've seen. You reject my testimony? If you're not willing to trust what I'm saying about the way God is going to work among people here on earth, you definitely won't believe me if I start describing to you what happens in heaven. Read on, verse 13. Jesus says the following. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. You know what Jesus is saying is massive here. Jesus is saying is the reason I can talk about these things with such authority is because I've come directly from heaven, the throne room of God himself. This isn't just a collection of teachings I've come up with, says Jesus. This is the heart of God himself. To many people in our neighborhood, in our community, Jesus was an influential teacher who was a great moral teacher. 
know, even just uh, in the past week or so, I had a conversation with my client who was uh, telling me, he said to me, you know, I love uh, about Jesus. He's such a good moral teacher. I love the passage where Jesus says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And my client was kind of describing to me that the, the things he re- is really interested in about Jesus is just these really accepting kind of moral teachings that Jesus had, which is true. Jesus is a great moral teacher. But if that's all that can be said of Jesus, well, that's to belittle or to blaspheme him and deny the truth of what he actually taught about himself. Jesus taught that he was, in fact, God himself. In the very beginning of this gospel, John begins the gospel by writing this. He says, And the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus and the Bible taught that God, or teaches that God is in essence a Father who loves his Son through the Holy Spirit. God in his essence is a loving relationship. The God of the Bible is love. And Jesus is in fact the Son of God come from heaven to earth as a man for us. That's what Christmas is all about, celebrating that reality. But here's the big problem. Though Nicodemus took objection to Jesus' teaching that he required complete renewal, if we really are morally corrupt, the real question is, how can God actually simply cleanse us and renew us for what we have done? You know, Jesus has been referring to this promise in Ezekiel of complete inner transformation, that God is going to completely transform us, cleansing from all of our wrongdoings with water and hearts renewed with a new spirit. But the real question is, how is that just? How is that fair? How can God be good, truly good, if he simply sprinkles clean people who have done genuine wickedness? You know, growing up, my dad was a crown prosecutor, and he used to uh, spend up you know, many late nights working on these cases. And often it was really nasty stuff, like really nasty sexual assault of children and things like that, and um, really horrible stuff. And just imagine being in the courtroom with the judge coming back with the verdict over the person who's accused of doing some horrific crime. And imagine if guilty is the verdict and the judge in response, as he goes to deliver the sentence, just kind of wags his finger, naughty, naughty, naughty. Come on, off you go. Don't do it again. And that was it. That'd be public outcry. That is not just and that is not good. And yet that's simply an illustration by our human standards. Gods are far greater. He must bring punishment upon every person who's broken his decrees to maintain his justice and his goodness. Well, how then can God be just if he simply promises to cleanse and renew people or as Jesus puts it, leads them to be born of water and spirit? We find the answer in the next verses of our passage. Read with me verse 14. Jesus says the following. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
Now, I love how Jesus so often speaks to people in a way they could just grasp. Remember, Nicodemus lived and breathed the Hebrew Bible. What Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus would have been crystal clear. He's referring to an event in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21, where Israel in the wilderness had been complaining about God again and again, despite God's faithfulness and kindness to them. And so God, in punishment, sends these fiery serpents into the camp and they attack and kill many of the people. And God's people stop their grumbling against God and complaining and they ask God for forgiveness. And God responds and says, make a bronze and put it on a pole and hold it up in the middle of the camp. And if anyone gets bitten by a snake, they can look at the serpent up in the camp and be healed. Okay, cool story, but what, what has that got to do with anything? Jesus is saying that serpent lifted up on a pole in the wilderness by which dying people could look to and find healing is a picture of what I will do for people. Jesus is talking about his coming death on the cross. See, God had sent his beloved son to become a man for us at Christmas. The Lord Jesus, he lived the perfect life. He lived the life we failed to live. He loved God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul, with all of his strength. And he loved others like no one has ever loved others before. There has never been a more influential person in the history of the world than Jesus Christ. And on the cross, he didn't just suffer physical pain. That's not all he suffered. God punished him on the cross for the sins of every one of us who would turn their backs on him. You see, Jesus' suffering was the worst suffering in the history of the universe because it was a place-taking suffering for us all. But Jesus isn't only talking about his coming death on the cross. He's also coming, talking about his coming exaltation as well. See, Jesus didn't just die on the cross. More than that, he, he was raised by God's newness of life. It was God's verdict over him that he, in fact, is God's beloved son. And it's also this resurrection life is a picture of God's plan to bring the kingdom of God here on earth. It's a picture of his plan to raise people from the dead, just like he did for his son. And because of Jesus' atoning death, God is able to freely regenerate people at the same time. He's able to sprinkle them with water. He's able to give them a new heart and still be just and good. Well, here's the obvious question. How do we receive this new spiritual life, this transformation, the healing that Jesus offers? Well, he spells it out for us in verse 15. Jesus says the following, So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying, you want to be cleansed? You want to be born again? You want to be renewed? You want to have this new heart that's soft and tender towards God? Do you want to have eternal life? Do you want to be part of the coming kingdom of God that will never end? Believe in me. Simply believe in me. Trying to be good won't work. Achievement in life won't work. Religious achievement won't work. Believe in me. 
You know, believe doesn't simply mean just believe in the ideas or intellectual consent. It, it's a relational word Jesus is talking about here. It means trust. Trust in me. Trust that I died on the cross in your place. Receive the gift I freely give to you. Trust me to be the king that you've never had to rule and reign over your life. And you will receive transformation akin to being born again. And that was the radical solution the Lord Jesus was offering to this deeply religious man. Though he had an inner corruption he couldn't see, like the bronze serpent in the wilderness, all he needed to do was to look to Jesus and receive the cleansing and inner renewal he so desperately needed. As we close, I just want to spend a brief moment pausing to reflect on what we should do with this passage, how we should respond to it. Firstly, if you're here today and or you're listening online and you wouldn't normally call yourself a follower of Jesus, I want to particularly speak to you and I just want to thank you so much for coming and joining us and or listening online. We're really honoured that you would come and join in our community and I just want to invite you to start a conversation today about following Jesus. And the truth is you can receive this wonderful gift right here, right now, this gift of new life, this transformation. All you need to do is pray and ask the Lord to be your Savior and King. Repent and believe is the cry of the New Testament. You, you say you're sorry to the Lord for the way you've been living your life and you receive the gift of Jesus. You look to Jesus, lift it up for you. You know, if that's something you want to do or you decide that you want to do that today, I just want to encourage you, let someone know. We'd love to partner with you on the journey God's got you on to know and love him. But maybe here you just got questions and it's just kind of provoked a few questions for you. I just want to invite you to start a conversation about following Jesus. Now, to our knowledge, Nicodemus left his conversation with Jesus in this moment, still a skeptic, but curious. But he didn't stay that way. In John chapter 7, verse 50, as we mentioned earlier, Jesus kind of, Nicodemus kind of weakly tries to defend Jesus to the Sanhedrin who are about to write him off. But then again in John chapter 19, verse 58, right at the end of this gospel, we see Nicodemus with Joseph of Arimathea as he bravely collects his body the body of the Lord Jesus, to bury him in Joseph's tomb. See, by the end of this gospel, Nicodemus, the skeptic, has himself become a disciple. And that could be your story too. So I invite you, start a conversation today about following Jesus. But if you're a follower of Jesus and here today or listening online, here's my encouragement to us. Let's not fall into the trap of believing where the morally good North Shore people saved by our own merits. Let's remember that we were spiritually dead, that we were morally corrupt, but the Lord Jesus rescued us. And may that lead, particularly on this Sunday, to the loudest of all thanksgiving and praise. Friends, let's thank God that he freely gives the complete transformation which is required to enter the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we want to thank you so much this morning for your patience, your kindness, 
and your grace. Thank you for preserving for us this beautiful encounter between Nicodemus, a man who was right in his own eyes, and our Lord Jesus, ever merciful and compassionate. Thank you, Lord, that Nicodemus's blindness was not a barrier to the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that Nicodemus's hardness of heart, his self-righteousness, was not a barrier to the majesty and grace of our Savior and King. But he lent in, he shared more, and he spoke the words of life to him. Lord God, this morning, whether we've been walking with Jesus for many years or whether we've been interested in hearing things about Jesus for the very first time, would you lead us ever increasingly be a people that wholly live for your praise. Help us to never cease to trust in you and to return our lives with thanksgiving to you until we perish or you return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.